listening to With Woman, a podcast hosted by midwives Sophie and Ashley. Join us as we help you to navigate the transition from womanhood to motherhood and everything in between. With Woman is your unfiltered and raw guide to empowering you to trust the process in hopes that each episode leaves you feeling a little more supported through your journey. Before we get into this episode, a little disclaimer. Although we are midwives, the information discussed in this podcast is not intended to substitute the care or advice of your healthcare provider. And we swear a lot. So here's your warning on that too. Hello, everyone. Hiya. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for another episode. And this one is a goodie. We are talking about induction of labor. Which is huge. There's so much content. We could literally talk about inductions all day, all week. Huge, just like my last weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Ashy out of lockdown. I had a big blowout. Oh, yeah, she did. (laughs) She called me the next day, like, guess what happened last night? <laughs> and the night before. <laughs> what did you drink? Mostly just wine? Oh, no. I went out for dinner, actually, um, last Thursday to this amazing restaurant in Potts Point called Chocho Sun. My roommate and I love it. So we went out together with a couple of our other friends. And I had three glasses of wine at dinner. What? White. Yeah. Fair enough. That's... Probably a little bit too much just for dinner when I had to work the next day. But See, I had what anyone that follows us on Instagram, Ash and her white wine. <laughs> but I had wine anxiety. Wine anxiety. Wine anxiety. Oh. It woke me up at midnight and I just had this like heavy chest. So no, I didn't drink that on the weekend. I stuck to the mugs and <laughs> some vodka sodas. Bought the DJ a shot so that he'd play um murder on the dance floor. <laughs> That it's is, a banger. That is such, <laughs> such an a old song too. <laughs> I have two party songs. What's the other one? It's that one. Is it Lizzo? The Easter, the Eastern Inner City Chicks love Murder on the Dance Floor. But my other one is This Is the Place um, from Talking Heads. Oh. So those two I always request when I'm out. <laughs> I'm so annoying. I thought it would have been Lizzo. Um, feel good. That's yours. No, mine's the other Lizzo one. I have great video footage of you banging out to that on one of our obstetric consultants' boats. <laughs> hey, I have a video too and you were in that one. <laughs> that was a good day. Anyway, we're not oh, talking about anyway. our weekends. <laughs> well, I didn't have nearly as much fun as Ash, but uh, I live, see, I live vicariously through Ash. I should start sending what you a little What else did you do this week? Did you go on a sneaky date? I went on a sneaky date. <laughs> But TBC but, on that one. Yeah. And it's not very good to put all your eggs in one basket. No, it isn't. It really isn't. And <laughs> we will save all date talk for our episode where we ask Ash about dating in lockdown, which we're not really in lockdown anymore. No, either. I don't think it's relevant. I think, therefore, we'll just can that episode. No, we won't. <laughs> good try. <laughs> all right. Anyway, back to... We have a lot to talk about today, so let's actually <laughs> This get episode, into. it's really content heavy. We hope you enjoy it. Induction of labour, affects about one third of birthing women in Australia, which is a pretty high statistic and it is on the rise. Yeah, yeah. Also, so many different factors that actually come into decisions for women when they're having inductions and they can be really different for every woman. So I feel like it's just so important for women to have all the facts when making decisions about their body because it doesn't just impact them. It can impact their baby. It can impact Mm. 
the actual full outcome of their birth. So I think today's episode, if you just come away from anything, we just want you to know everything there possibly can be about induction. If you are needing one or you're wanting one, you have all the facts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important to preface at the start of this that fundamentally the role of an induction is to ultimately prevent perinatal mortality or morbidity and adverse outcomes from occurring. But in some instances, as we discuss, perhaps inductions aren't quite required and there are alternates to having an induction. Yeah. And look, I definitely have my own personal opinion on inductions. I definitely believe that if a woman wants an induction, then, and she's also term, because Mm -hmm. that's a very important factor as well, and that they've been briefed and counselled on like everything that induction entails, the risk, the possible like shift outcomes of their birth in comparison to spontaneously labouring, then I think they should have the right and the opportunity to make that decision because I think making informed decisions makes for informed choices really. And it's just, it's really hard to educate women on a subject that not all of them want to know about. Yeah. They just... I think especially when a woman gets to term, they just want the baby out at some point. Mm. And if you're offering an induction, they're just like, yep, I'll do it. When they don't actually know really what a full induction can entail. Why do you think induction rates are rising? Fear. Yeah. I think is a massive one. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the system bases policy changes off things that have happened in the past. And it could be like a two, three, four percent is like quite low. Mm. But then that changes things for women and stats go up. To like what 30s 40s yeah well like we said it's one third of birthing women are induced and 40 percent of those women are first-time mothers with no known risk factors which that's huge it's a lot so you wonder what leads women to agreeing to have an induction in the first place I think it's really tricky when we start to talk about statistics as well because they a lot of the studies around inductions of labor and how they prevent, you know, emergency cesarean sections from happening and adverse outcomes for mother and baby in occurring, they all group together women who have had a baby before and women who haven't. And that's because very the, difficult because yeah. women who haven't had a baby before labor a lot differently, labor differently than yeah. a woman that's had a baby before or multiple babies. Exactly right. Yeah. Over the last 30 years, induction rates have definitely risen, which we know. In 1991, for example, the national average for induction was 19.5%. And then in the Mothers and Babies Report in New South Wales in 2019, that's risen to 34.3%. That's wild. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's difficult because that Mothers and Babies Report, there's always a lag in yeah. our yeah. stats. So that 34% is probably now 36, 37% in 2021, maybe even higher. So from 2015 to 2019, which is only four years, mm-hmm. it went from 30.5% to 34.3%. Yeah. So 4% in, what did I say, four years? Yeah, four years. <laughs> <laughs> you can't claim Mama baby can't brain for not knowing. <laughs> you don't know how to math. <laughs> I use my calculator for everything. <laughs> Actually, just this week, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence, referred to as NICE, 
released their updated publication on induction of labour guidelines for the NHS in the UK. It's important to note what these amendments are because it's quite often that our healthcare system mirrors similar policies in the long term. A lot of the changes in recommendations were really solely related to ensuring that women had informed choices when making decisions surrounding induction. I think that's the biggest Which thing. is so Just important. Informed. Yes. And it's all about language and communication. Yeah. Um, a lot of the guidelines talk about providing safe options and alternatives as well as respecting the woman's decision, whatever that may be. So if, um, if you wanted to have a look at those guidelines, they're easily accessible online. You can have a look at them. Obviously, this is based in the UK, but very important to note that this progression has occurred, particularly around language and decision-making. Yeah, what you just say in like changing the language because it's a very individualised conversation that needs to happen for every single woman, really. Yeah. It's easy to say to a woman, we're going to induce you, we're going to just break your waters. Mm. And women are like, yeah, okay, I'll get my waters broken. But they don't actually know how their waters get broken yeah. or the process to getting to that point. So or the, need to or actually, the risk factors. Yeah, the risk factors. You need to actually change your language per person. Yeah, I think it's important to note too that conversations surrounding inductions can occur in so many different scenarios as well. This is not always a discussion that happens during an antenatal appointment. It's not always a scheduled induction. And this is why it's paramount that particularly as health professionals, and if there are any midwives listening or student midwives listening, it's really important that we all share relevant individualized information when we have these discussions with women. And this should include holistic factors such as the woman's personal birth preferences including their ideal mode of birth yeah that's important. respecting the fact that we may not agree that a cold elective cesarean section is the right way to birth but if they have significant trauma in their life or have had an adverse outcome from a previous birth experience then that needs to be taken into consideration and also their previous birth experiences as well that's a huge one absolutely and And women have a lot of birth trauma from first births or second births and if they're wanting an induction and they know all the choices that they have and everything if that's going to help them on their birth journey really to Mm. help heal from their first trauma then that should be considered i think we have an obligation and definitely a responsibility to help support women in this decision making process whatever that decision may be so that women do not feel judged i feel like when you're talking about women's birth stories if you're talking like friends and everything and they say oh yeah i got induced they always have a reason for being induced mm. like yeah i got induced oh but like i had to get induced for this or that like if you got induced it's not like a yeah. yeah and it's not a bad thing no, yeah. not at all. You're still birthing your baby. Like, it's exactly <laughs> the same. It's just, that was your choice. Yeah, and, you know, supporting a woman's decision really does look like helping them to make informed decisions by providing all of the evidence, the negatives and the positives, and holding space for conversation and allowing women to be actually involved in these discussions as well. It's not a one-sided conversation. And I also don't think it's a conversation that can be rushed. Definitely not. And I think... A common misconception around the birthing process in general is a woman's ability to be in control of her own body. And there is a strong connection between an inability in having control over your body and birth trauma. So one in three women describe the birth of their baby as traumatic. That's a huge. That's massive. 
And one of the key risk factors for this is feeling out of control, unheard, or not knowing what's going on, as well as ineffective or limited support from either their healthcare provider or their partner and their family. Mm. With this growing awareness, and I think there's definitely a lot of focus and attention on women's health issues and women's rights in the maternity setting, it all boils down to empowering yourself. We know that knowledge is power. You need to not stick your head in the sand, even though you may not want to know about the induction process in depth. Sometimes we're time poor when we're making these decisions. If you have a little background knowledge, then that will help you further down the track. Ultimately, everyone wants to achieve the same goal, and that's a healthy and happy mum and baby. But it's all about communication. Yeah, And that works both ways. It's a two-way street. So let's just start with the basics of what is an induction. (laughs) I hope you know what an induction is. We've spoken about it for the last 10 minutes. You're probably like, what the hell is that? You probably Googled it already if you don't know. So induction is defined as the process of artificially stimulating the uterus to start contractions that lead to birthing your baby before the natural physiological process of labor commences. So there's three main reasons as to why you might be offered an induction. Number one is for a medical reason where there may be a risk to either yourself or your baby. And an example of these could be preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, intrauterine growth restriction or SGA. Number two is a pre-labor rupture of membranes. So this is actually where your waters break without the presence of contractions. And if you're GBS positive, then usually induction is offered at the time that your waters break. And if it's GBS negative, then you're usually given different options of to induce straight away or wait 24 hours. Number three, if you're considered to be post-date. So this is anywhere from 40 to 42 weeks gestation and hospital policies do advise to induce for post-dates at around 40 plus 10 days to 40 plus 12 days. There are a few other somewhat controversial reasons why you may be offered an induction. These include an IVF pregnancy, advanced maternal age, so for those women over the age of 40. Sorry. I was about to say, is it 40 or is yeah, it 38 40. now? In the... No, it's 40. it's 40. They do consider, what's the term? Geriatric. Yeah, it's fucking awful. <laughs> Over 35? Geriatric. Like, You're a geriatric <laughs> maternity patient. Like it's disgusting. Just, I'm sorry. I'm you can sorry. tell what we feel about that. <laughs> I am not geriatric in I'm going to be years. geriatric at this rate. <laughs> my ovaries are not geriatric. Or my uterus. Thank you. Oh, did you get them checked? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. All right, moving on. We'll go on to the next. High BMI, so women... Um, that are considered to be obese so usually that's bmi of over 30 and large for gestational age which that one is a very this one i wouldn't say controversial because there is definitely a setting for lga induction true i think especially if like a woman's had a bigger baby Mm -hmm. previously Mm -hmm. and she's had like a shoulder dystocia or a third degree tear Mm. something like that and this baby's measuring quite large as well yeah but it's very hard to diagnose an LGA baby via an ultrasound these days when an ultrasound is plus or minus 500 grams usually. Yeah, which is about 15%. Yeah. Most other obstetricians would kill us for saying this. Yeah. I mean, it's a contentious issue because obviously in some instances 
inducing for large gestational age is completely appropriate, particularly oh, in the context of a woman having a previous shoulder dystocia yeah. or yeah, because those scenarios can be injury. quite scary. Absolutely, but um, the flip side of that is that unfortunately we're not trusting the woman's body and the woman's body's ability to create a baby that is appropriate for her size and we induce unnecessarily in some instances and it doesn't always prevent shoulder dystocia from happening because most women who have inductions birth on their backs they require more analgesia to cope with labor aka an epidural um, and that's not a great position to birth in to prevent shoulder dystocia from mm. occurring particularly yeah. if we're suspecting that there is a big baby and how many women board. do you induce for lga and mm. the baby comes out 3.3 like, kilos oh yeah 3.3 is still hard to push out <laughs> <laughs> statistics for you. In 2016, 91.7% of Australian babies were born between 37 and 41 plus 6 weeks and 0.6% were born beyond 42 weeks. For term births, labour was spontaneous in 48.8% of women and induced in 31.2% of women. 20% of women had no labour at all. So this is usually like an elective Caesar. And then for births beyond 42 weeks gestation, labour was spontaneous in 35% of women and induced in 59.8% of women. And then 5.1% of women had no labour. I reckon that's huge considering that if you go beyond 42 weeks pregnant, your chances of actually spontaneously labouring are around 35%. Among Australian women of all gestations whose labour was induced in 2016, 60.7% had a vaginal birth, 18.6% had an assisted vaginal birth, so that means vacuum or forceps, and 20.8% had a... a had an a, l- 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 a lower segment <laughs> had an elective cesarean section <laughs> i think it's important to note again which we touched on earlier all of the women are grouped together in this statistic yeah. so women who are having their third baby and who are induced no issue basically comes out in puff of glitter actually third babies can sometimes be, be a little naughty bit, yeah, naughty True. second second babies easy yeah <laughs> like a dream usually so the statistics is not i mean obviously they look quite good in terms of like vaginal birth rates are quite good following an induction. However, I'd like to know what specifically... Primates and multis. Yeah, Yeah. the differences. So the active management policy for induction was actually designed in Dublin. Well, this is where it came out of. And the labour approach has been widely adopted throughout the entire world, including Australia, but only certain aspects of the approach are generally used, which is really interesting. Originally... The Dublin model, which they designed, also included special labour preparation classes, a psychological support in labour and regular supervision of the delivery area by senior staff in the active labour management plan. However, many countries only used some of the aspects of the policy. So they literally just picked like the amniotomy and augmentation, which consequently many of the objectives that Dublin had originally tried to achieve have not been achieved. Like, for example, decreasing their Caesar rate. I think it's really important to note that preparation has a huge role to play. Massive. So for an example of induction, we're going to use a post-dates induction, as this is the type of induction that's most similar in cases compared to you or your baby having a medical reason for an induction. Yeah, so induction of labour for prolonged pregnancy is widely practised with the aim of preventing stillbirth and reducing perinatal morbidity rates. 
So let's just say your healthcare providers offered you an induction and you want to know a little bit more about how the process unfolds. Inductions have many different avenues and you may need the complete whole shebang or you might just need one of the induction methods. Quite often you'll be offered what we call a stretch and sweep first and this is a sweeping of the membranes. So a sweep and stretch prior to induction is the attempt to get your body into labour naturally or it's kind of like the least, least intervention. Yeah. yeah, least yeah. invasive. Yeah. yeah. So basically a midwife or a doctor will insert two fingers into your vagina and find your cervix. Now, every woman's cervix is at a different position because as you can imagine, your baby's head is engaged in your pelvis and the angle of your cervix could be flipped backwards. So if it is, we call that posterior or anterior, meaning that it's at the front. So we find the cervix with our two fingers. If the cervix is slightly open, we insert both of those fingers through the cervix and we sweep the membranes off the cervix. So basically that means we're touching your baby's head and there's a barrier between your baby's head and your cervix and that's the amniotic sac that's filled with fluid and we sweep those membranes off the cervix. And what that's supposed to do is release prostaglandins that continue to soften and stretch your cervix that may or may not spark the process of labor. Sweep and stretches can definitely be uncomfortable, but it does just take around 10, 20 seconds. Yeah, it's not long at all. Yeah. It's kind of uncomfortable like a pap smear, really, because they're not the most comfortable things either. And there's no prep or downtime for it. So you could just come into the clinic for a normal appointment and then you go about your day straight after, as you would, I guess, a pap smear. Yeah. 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 So sweep and stretches are associated with a 24% increase of chance of delivering within 48 hours, a 46% increase in delivering within a week, and a 74% reduction in likelihood of going two weeks past your due date. Now, there are a couple of small risk factors in having a stretch and sweep as it is a light form of intervention. The first one that some women often experience is an increase in vaginal mucus discharge and quite often it can be a little bit bloody. So any vaginal bleeding, we always ask women to contact their health provider. Because it's abnormal. (laughs) Because it's abnormal. But quite often when it's mixed in with mucus that's come away from the cervix, usually that's quite reassuring. But if you are experiencing any vaginal bleeding post um, a stretch and sweep, we do advise that you contact your healthcare provider. Uh, Sometimes it also causes regular contractions that aren't super strong but are a little bit stronger than a Braxton Hicks and are more uncomfortable, this may not necessarily lead to labor. So you could have a couple of days of these like uterine, we call it irritability. So basically it's these contractions that are pretty painful for you and uncomfortable but aren't really doing anything to change the cervix. There also is a risk that the healthcare provider performing the stretch and sweep may accidentally break your waters. (laughs) So most evidence shows that you should only be offered stretches and sweeps past 40 weeks pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean that you won't be offered them a little bit earlier. But majority of public hospitals will offer a stretch and sweep once you hit your due date and then again at 41 weeks if you're still pregnant. So some private obstetricians will offer sweep and stretches earlier or if you have a medical condition or your baby does um, and they want to actually induce you earlier, then you might be offered stretches and sweeps earlier as well. Um, And it's also important to feel safe and supported during a sweep and stretch as well. So you're in control of the whole situation and you can always ask your healthcare provider attending the sweep and stretch to stop at any point during the process. You do not have to have a stretch and sweep. 
I think this is just what yes. we want to clarify as yes. well. A lot of women get to their 40 week appointment. Nah, I'm not too keen on it. I just want to see if my body will do it on its own. That's fine. Mm. Okay. If you're offered a stretch and sweep anywhere throughout your pregnancy, you do not have to have one. So we're going to go through the actual induction process post a sweep and stretch. And this is if you actually, you've gone, you've had your sweep and stretches, you're still pregnant and you're post date at a public hospital. This is what we deem. We usually induce at about 40 plus 10 to 40 plus 12. Yeah, it's the most common gestation to be induced at for being overdue. Um, I think it's important to note before we delve into this as well, it's usually a doctor obstetrician that will devise your plan for induction. This is not something that's in the scope of practice of a midwife. Before any intervention occurs, we first want to know the well-being of your baby before we start the process of induction. So this involves having a CTG monitor attached to your abdomen. A CTG is a short term for cardiotocography. Which I made Ash say that because you know how good I am with long words. <laughs> and this is where we connect you to a monitor that records your baby's heart rate, prints out the baby's heart rate on a long strip of paper and also measures any uterine activity that may be happening. This will measure are contractions and Braxton Hicks so if you have non-painful Braxton Hicks that'll also be recorded and we can't tell the difference between that that's when we ask you what you're experiencing yeah so you'll have two material bands they're like very stretchy wrapped around your belly and as Ash said one monitors the heartbeat and the other one monitors your uterus so it's completely different for every situation of how long you'll actually have this CTG monitor on because there's certain aspects of a CTG that midwives and doctors look at to make sure that your baby is happy and healthy. You might have it on for 30 minutes, you might have it on for an hour prior to commencing an induction. There are two different types of monitoring. For one, most hospitals will have a wireless monitoring system, which yeah, like is Bluetooth. like Bluetooth, which is great. It means you're not connected to a machine per se and allows you to mobilize, walk around the room, go to the bathroom, etc. Other monitoring makes is connected to the machine, so that restricts you to being around the bedside. So if you happen to be on one of those monitors, just make sure you go to the toilet before the CTG commences. <laughs> Obviously, at any point, if you need to go to the bathroom, we can stop the monitoring and you can go, but it just can be, it can take a little bit of time and can make the process a bit longer. Also have something to do and your drink bottle handy as well so you can have small sips of water along the way. Once the syntocin on drips being commenced, continuous monitoring of the baby is vital right up until birth. So definitely have a think about the ability to move and walk around or have water immersion, etc. when continuously monitored. Some positions are hard to gain access to the baby's heart rate and when you're changing positions constantly, you're going to have your midwife that's fiddling around with the monitors and the bands because obviously think about if you're kneeling or you're standing and squatting, the bands and that are going to move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as well as baby comes down into the birth canal, quite often the midwife will be fiddling with the monitors to move them down on your belly because baby's obviously coming lower. Midwives will just constantly be touching you. Just be prepared for that. <laughs> so wear something that's easily accessible just to take the monitors your top off. as well. Oh, that too. But Have a crop yeah. on. Crop top crop on. Top. <laughs> 
a lot of out. women wear like sarongs and stuff too that yeah. like tie at the front. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And once your CTG is applied, you'll usually have a cannula um, put in your arm, usually like your arm or your hand, so some bloods can be taken as well. So a cannula is like a plastic needle that sits into your vein that provides us um, intravenous access for fluids, your syntocin on drip, medications. Like but there's no actual needle in it. The needle comes but, out. Yeah, yeah. It's plastic. <laughs> but often that's quite. I think most women have the most fear about having a cannula. As well, it's just annoying too sometimes. It's weird having something sitting on your, under your skin and taped in. It can give people the ick. And think about as well, obviously the person that's putting in your cannula is going to try to put it in a place where if you're moving around a lot in labour or you're yeah. bending your arms and everything, try not to like... It's least restrictive. Yeah, get it in your forearm or something. But also if you have a preference, you should voice that. So yeah, like it goes you, my hand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like if you want it in a specific place, then definitely feel safe enough to ask your healthcare provider. So if you prefer it in your arm, you go for your that. arm. Yeah. <laughs> the next part of an induction will be a vaginal examination and that's going to be attended... By either a midwife or a doctor. Yeah, and always with consent. To assess if your cervix is open, which we spoke about before with sweeping of the membranes and everything. If you're two centimetres or over and the cervix is thin, then an ARM can be attended. So an ARM is the artificial rupture of your membranes. If the vaginal examination is attended and your cervix is less than two centimetres dilated or your cervix is Thick, then it's quite often that we'll administer an additional medication to get your cervix to open to the point that we're able to perform that ARM. Now there's something called a Bishop score. So this is how healthcare providers are able to determine how favorable a cervix is for induction. Favorable is the term that we use to kind of suggest how ready your body, how ready your cervix is in particular, but I guess how ready your body is to labor. You think about your the role of a cervix in pregnancy. Basically, it's like a thick donut that's closed. There's not much of a hole through it. And what that does is holds your baby up into your uterus throughout pregnancy and stops your baby from being born preterm. Towards the end of your pregnancy, that cervix starts to thin. So the donut's thinning out. The donut thins out and the donut starts to get a big hole in the middle of it. Yep. <laughs> So typically by term, so anywhere from 37 weeks onwards, that we call it effacement when the cervix starts to thin. Your cervix starts to efface. So when we're doing these vaginal examinations and determining what we call a bishop score, one of the categories is figuring out how long the cervix is. So you could perhaps be two centimeters dilated, but your cervix might be three centimeters in length. So you've we got wouldn't a thick donut. Con- yeah, you got a thick donut. <laughs> we wouldn't consider that to be that favorable because as labor commences, your cervix has a lot of work to do in thinning out before it continues to dilate open. So ideally, we want the cervix to be paper thin. Yeah. And it's literally paper thin. Yeah. Sometimes you do a vaginal examination that feels like you're tearing. It's like the a very cervix. thin you're band. Not. Yeah. 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 Like a hair elastic almost. <laughs> no retraction, please. <laughs> I also want to note too that there can be some discrepancies in vaginal examinations. Obviously, it's not something that we can visualize as practitioners. It's only something that's guided by feel. So there can be a lot of discrepancies between 
healthcare between providers. clinicians, and yeah. that's why continuity of care is really important. So you should ideally only have the one person performing those examinations, so that we know that's exactly what yeah. We so like, if Ash examines someone and she's saying they're two centimeters, and then I examine them and I'm like, oh, but they they're kind of three. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like still very. That means close, you have wider but... fingers than I do. <laughs> do I? No, you Mine don't actually. I'll say it's three, and you'll say it's two. <laughs> you're my chubby little pudgies. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> little sausages. <laughs> Anyway, back on track. <laughs> As we said, if your cervix is under two centimetres, then we sometimes need to insert a medication called a prostaglandin to assist your cervix to become favourable. The two main types are cervidil or prostin. Cervidil is a pessary kind of like, it kind of looks like a tampon. Mm. So it's a very paper thin tampon and the medication is in the... Embedded. In the tampon bit. Yeah. If you can try to picture that. Very technical term, really. This cervidil, little pessary, is inserted into the vagina, into the posterior fornix. That's just what we call the back of your vagina, right up behind your cervix. It looks like a paper-thin tampon and actually has like a string attached to it as well. This is inserted and it remains in the vagina for approximately 12 to 24 hours to assist in softening and opening the cervix. Other form of prostaglandin is known as prostin. Now, prostin is a gel that is inserted into the vagina via a syringe. Now, the syringe doesn't have a needle on the end of it. It's just (laughs) a plain (laughs) syringe. And it's put in the same place as what the cervidil would be. We do an internal examination, a vaginal examination. We insert the syringe in between our fingers and you shoot the gel towards the cervix, behind the cervix. Yeah, literally like a plunger. Now, it's quite often that some women need a few doses of prostin over 12 hours, whereas with the cervidil, it's just one tape that stays in for 12 to 24 hours, that's it. So the prostin gel can be a little bit more invasive in terms of you probably having multiple examinations. And I think the prostin gel is more expensive for one, so not every hospital offers it. Typically, hospitals will offer cervidil or prostin, not both. And the prostin gel can be quite um, irritating to the vaginal wall as well. I find that women find it quite uncomfortable. Yeah, the gel. Yeah. Yeah. So both of these prostaglandins have the chance of putting you into labor. However, pretty rarely, I'd say especially with first-time mums, but it does does happen. happen. Yeah. So you stay in the hospital in delivery suite overnight or on the ward and can experience period-like pains as the medication helps to dilate your cervix. So majority of hospitals will offer a sleeping tablet or some sort of pain relief overnight to get you through these little niggling pains. Not every person will experience pain with the medications though. So some women get a really good night's sleep and it doesn't mean that the medication isn't doing its job really. So by morning... The healthcare provider will check your cervix again and we check if the medication's working and if the cervix is dilated enough, this is when we can break your amniotic sac. There is an additional way to open the cervix, which is not a medication. Basically, the catheter is inserted into the vagina via a speculum. So it's a little bit different than inserting medication as we're not using our hands in this process. So the speculum's like the little plastic duck beaks that you use... For um, pap smears. smears. Yeah, Yeah. very similar to that. So we 
we're looking at the cervix as we're putting the catheter tubing through it. The catheter tubing is fed through the cervix. This can be quite an uncomfortable process, particularly for women who have like almost a closed cervix. And you're usually up in stirrups. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, it's not the nicest of processes. The tubing's inserted to the other end of the cervix, so just inside the uterus. And then the balloon is filled up with water. Now, once the balloon internal is filled up with water, a slow, gentle traction is applied. Picture you've got like a very thin tube coming out of your vagina and usually we tape it to, to your, your thigh. Yeah, and then pull it a little bit so it's tight. Yeah. So the little balloon sitting on the inside of your cervix is trying to come through your cervix with pressure. This type of induction method or early induction method is often used when we want to eliminate risk to baby risk to baby so if you're being induced for example for having a small for gestational age baby where we don't want to hit them too hard with contractions or any type of medication or any like type of medication gel that we can't take out yeah yeah then this is why this would be used the Foley's catheter is also used when cervidil or prostin gel hasn't been effective yeah that's a good thing yeah it's like <laughs> That's yeah, good that's good. Thing. Good, good point there. <laughs> Once the cervix is dilated enough to break your waters, an artificial rupture of membranes can be attended. Usually, the balloon it either falls out on its own, really, once yeah. you kind of hit the two, three centimeter mark, or it's taken out by the healthcare provider once you kind of meet that centimeter mark. <laughs> Usually, again, it's kept for, there's usually a 12 to 24 yeah. hour wait with that balloon inserted before another examination is performed, unless it's fallen out in the meantime. If you're ARMable, so we can break your waters. <laughs> again, <laughs> another like. Another form of. Jar- jargon. Medical jargon. Yeah. <laughs> ARMable. <laughs> if you're ARMable on your first examination, so you've come into the hospital for your induction, we examine you, you don't need your prostaglandin gels or pessaries, and you don't need the Foley's balloon, you've just skipped the steps of the first part of the inductions, really. Yeah, so well done to you. Yeah, so you've just <laughs> skipped steps. So you can go straight for an ARM. ARM is attended in the same position as a vaginal examination. Two fingers are inserted into the vagina and the doctor or midwife will also insert a very thin rod and it has the tiniest little hook at the end. You can't even really see the hook. Kind of picture a knitting needle. It's legit a knitting needle. It literally looks like a knitting needle. This does not hurt. However, the VE can be uncomfortable on its own. So it doesn't actually hurt like having your waters broken, but the whole process can be uncomfortable. Once the hook aka the knitting needle glides over the membranes the bag will break and your amniotic fluid will start leaking out congratulations this means you can now wear a giant pad until your baby's born because it's actually going to keep coming and coming and coming and i don't think women realize no this. i think a lot of women think that their waters break or the amniotic fluid sac breaks and and that's it that's it yeah and also, I think it's important to mention too that it's not always this Hollywood gush explosion of, of, of water yeah. pooling all over the floor. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's definitely happened. Oh, I've been coated before. Yeah, it actually happened to me last like, week. Like, it's gone through my scrub pants yeah. and my undies. 
Yeah. That sounds really gross. But... Into your socks. That's happened to oh, me. Oh, yeah, like down your leg and stuff too. And you're like, try, they're not aware that this is happening. Like, all you can think is like, oh, it's dripping into my socks. Because you've got to think, the position that we've got to get into to actually perform, perform it, you're usually yeah. sitting on the side of the bed and if yeah. the waters break and then it just pours out onto the bed, it's yeah. usually There's going There's not much lag into... time. Yeah, no. Sometimes it's not super obvious that we've ruptured membranes um and so there can be like a really light trickle of fluid or nothing at all in which case we just continue to monitor to make sure we have done it yeah your healthcare provider will also observe the color of the lycor so this can mean different things clear and pink is good we like that Anything green or brown can mean your baby's done its first poop inside. And this Which is, is what we quite call, common, yeah, particularly for prostates. Yes. This is what we call meconium stained lycor. So your healthcare provider will discuss with you at the time if they observe this. Once your waters have been broken, the next step is contractions. <laughs> whoop whoop. <laughs> you won't be saying that. No. <laughs> So some women start contracting once the amniotic sac has been broken um, and this is enough to release the hormones to get the body going. So then you don't need the syntocinon drip Drip. at all. So some hospitals will actually give you a few hours before starting the drip to see if your body will go into labor on its own with just your ARM, sometimes an hour or two. And then other hospitals will start the drip straight away. Yeah, literally straight after you've had your waters broken. If there are any risk factors at the time that they break your waters, they usually advise to get going straight away so baby's heart rate has dropped at any point or is elevated if there's the presence of meconium stained lycor and also if you have that bacteria called group b strep typically they want you to start the drip straight away or as well if we want the presenting parts of the head to to come come a little bit further down into the pelvis yeah we'll usually start so the physiological process of spontaneous labor or going into labor naturally is completely involuntary and it's controlled by hormones excreted mostly from the placenta. It is not completely understood what exactly initiates the onset of labor, but it's definitely a combination of a surge of hormones such as estrogen, presence of oxytocin, which causes the uterus to contract, an increased production of prostaglandins that is released from the placenta that soften and ripen the cervix, and also a hormone called relaxin, which allows the body to soften and relax, including the pelvic floor muscles. Which is a very important. Neurotransmitters like endorphins also come into play as they play a role in providing a kind of natural pain relief, which some women would suggest otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's important to note as well that pain in labor is not pathological, it's physiological. Yeah. So physiological pain is pain that is meant to be there. And for some women, they don't experience birth as painful at all. Now, to get to the point where you don't experience birth as painful does require a lot of mental preparation. You do need to feel completely comfortable in your environment when birthing. You need to feel safe and you really need to completely surrender to the process. So having this knowing that this pain has purpose, it's going to end. It's meant to be there to allow you to pain. Yeah. 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 It's, It's a pain you're not unhealthy. No, yeah. I think when we not when we typically experience pain as people, it's a, an indicator for us to know that something is wrong. Yeah, you're sick. So when yeah, so when you cut yourself and you're bleeding out, the pain is there to remind you that you're that is happening. And you need to do something about it. Yeah. Whereas birth. <laughs> is a natural thing yeah it's a good pain some would not say that yeah (laughs) i would not attempt to tell that to a woman in transition (laughs) they tell you to fuck off 
Yeah. When spontaneous labor occurs, a woman experiences neurological changes that allow her to cope with labor. So increasing oxytocin levels in the woman's bloodstream during labor produce more intense contractions, which then the nervous system responds to by releasing endorphins, so the body's natural painkiller, which impacts the frontal cortex and making the woman become more instinctive. So close your eyes, stop talking, moan, all of that. We often refer to oxytocin as the love hormone. It actually has pain relieving components in it. So you release the same hormone when you orgasm or when you breastfeed, which are two very different activities. <laughs> this same hormone is also released when mothers and babies do skin to skin. And even when you have warm interactions with other humans of both sexes. So oxytocin has been linked to decreased stress and anxiety, which when you think about that, like coming together in labor and everything, yeah. that's the one thing you want to do is release your stress, anxiety about the whole yeah, and prevent a surge of adrenaline because, yeah. as we know, your adrenaline is your flat and flat. Fight, adrenaline. <laughs> fight, 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 fight. Just fighting. <laughs> no, everything's fighting. Um, adrenaline is your fight and flight response. And when that's initiated, it actually suppresses your oxytocin. We quite often see it actually when women initially present to birthing units. So they may have called birthing unit and have said, you know, I'm contracting quite regularly. I might be, you know, two, three minutely. Really intense contractions. You hear them on the phone. They're quite vocal. They come into birthing unit and everything simmers down. Yeah. Yeah, it just fizzles. It fizzles. And that's because of environmental change. You know, there's more stimuli. So that the frontal lights, yeah, yeah, that frontal cortex of their brain has taken over and that limbic system's no longer working. You've kind of stalled labor. So that's why as midwives we often advise women to stay at home as long as possible. Your as own long as safe environment. Yeah, as long yeah. as they're most comfortable to be because it's where they're going to labor most effectively and efficiently. I think, you know, when they come into hospital obviously there's some interruption that occurs there and we want to prevent augmentation and induction from happening in an otherwise spontaneous natural process. It's like when they say in mammals, a mammal will be like birthing out in the wild. And then if there's danger coming along, labor can actually stop. Yeah. And it gives them time to like go find a safe place to then actually be able to birth safely. So when you're actually induced, syntocinon is the synthetic version of the oxytocin hormone that you excrete in spontaneous labor. And we administer it through an IV drip. Now the difference is when it's injected into the body, it doesn't actually cross into the brain, which means it doesn't hold the same psycho-emotional components that the natural oxytocin does. So this is why a lot of women may say that inductions hurt a lot more or contractions are a lot more painful or intense when they're induced because the oxytocin the body's usually given time to slowly introduce the hormone and stagger out the contraction as the labor progresses compared to syntocinon being started. And at times contractions can start really soon after we actually start the drip. So the body doesn't always get a chance to regulate contractions like natural labor does. This is one thing that we can't control when starting syntocinon. We can adjust the rate and get contractions to the point that we want them to, like every two minutes. However, every woman reacts differently to the medication. So when we start the IV drip on women, we never know whether they're going to start contracting quite quickly mm. after starting the drip mm. or take some yeah, time. A woman can be on a drip for like an hour or two and not even have one contraction. Yeah. And there's strict kind of policies as to how many contractions a woman should have and how far apart they should be as well. And that doesn't necessarily mimic what a natural labor does. For most women, particularly towards the end of their labor in a spontaneous labor, their contractions can often stagger out a little bit more. So when you're induced with syntocin, which is the synthetic version of oxytocin, 
we're completely controlling it, but we can only control it at that strict rate. We can't make contractions stagger out and then come back together. That's not how it works as well. The drip starts off at a very slow dose. The syntocinon is actually put into a bag of fluids and the medication is going to assist your body to start contracting. The drip is titrated by the healthcare provider to make your body contract about every two minutes and get the contractions to last around about 60 seconds each. So you'll have your line hooked into your IV, which we discussed earlier, and then connected to a pump. The medication is infused through your IV until the baby's born. So a lot of women think like they start to have the drip. And then it stops. And then it stops, but no. So the dip, the dip. The drip will be titrated by your healthcare provider for the rest of your induction process. That's just a little rundown of the induction process. Inductions have a lot of positives and definitely have a lot of negatives as well. And not everyone will experience the negatives. I just want to definitely clarify that some inductions can be really positive, empowering, and it really depends on your healthcare provider as to what time of the day the induction starts. Some hospitals start the inductions in the arvos, others start in the mornings. So it really just depends. And then also some inductions take longer than others. If your friend had a three to four hour induction, doesn't mean you're going to have a three to four hour induction. (laughs) Inductions can take days, really. As is with anything, particularly in relation to intervention, there is always risks associated with having an induction. The choice to have an induction is usually made to outweigh another risk factor. I think it's just important to note a couple of things that may or may not occur during an induction process. And the first one is something that we call fetal distress. So basically, and and fetal distress can occur in a spontaneous labor as well. Just because you're being induced doesn't mean it's the only instance in which it occurs. Fetal distress is basically when we see changes in the fetal heart rate pattern that indicate to us that the baby is becoming hypoxic. So basically hypoxia is when the baby's not getting enough blood supply and enough oxygenation through their bloodstream. So this can be shown in a number of different factors that your healthcare provider is trained in observing. Another thing is your induction may not work, usually termed failed induction but I hate this term because it's really just putting on the woman that you've failed something I want to just note here that we're putting in terms that you're going to hear when you're in hospital because unfortunately this is the way that the language is so that's why we're using these terms even though we're saying we hate them (laughs) (laughs) so yeah it's not that you failed something it just is occasionally the process to open your cervix doesn't work and your cervix doesn't open enough so we can actually break your waters. Yeah. So this will be discussed with you by your healthcare provider about the next steps that happen because sometimes it involves going home and then coming back and starting the process again another day or possibly having a cesarean as well. Another adverse outcome that could potentially occur from being induced is overstimulation or hyperstimulation of the uterus. Sometimes this is unpredictable, particularly when admin- when we administer the cervical ripening components of the induction, so the cervidil tape or the prostin gel. Sometimes it's unpredictable how your body's going to respond to that, and sometimes your body responds a little too well. So basically that means just that it yeah, really you'll just go zero to a hundred real bloody quick and it's not a vibe. So basically it's when your uterus really absorbs that prostaglandin and over contracts. Or it can so happen with the drip too, but very rarely because we're titrating it. Yeah. yeah. So basically it's an overstimulation is when your uterus is contracting too much. And typically we deem this by 
five to six contractions in a 10 minute period. And typically it's indicative. We can see what's going on based on baby's heart rate pattern as well, because it's all correlated. You can imagine when you get a contraction, the top of your uterus is big muscle contracts down. So gets the muscle gets really firm and hard that compresses the baby and pushes the baby down onto your cervix. So if that contraction happens quite frequently or for a long period of time, Everything in that uterus is really tight, including that umbilical cord that's providing good blood flow to your baby. It's really just not giving the baby or you a break. Yeah, enough time. But then if that does happen, there's ways that we can help counteract it, it, counteract it. So there's a medication that we usually give, and this is given through the drip, and it's subutamol. Which is a it's a smooth muscle relaxant. So by administering salbutamol, it causes everything to relax. So it stops your contractions completely. It can give you a really bad bout of anxiety though, because it increases your yeah, heart rate. Some of the side effects yeah. for it when yeah. it's administered intravenously. And there's also different types of it as well. So it's not just subutamol. There's also other medications that we can give that work do, in the do same, the same way. Yeah, do the same job. Very interestingly, in a study conducted in the UK in 2015, it showed women who have an induction were more likely to have an epidural in labor than someone who spontaneously labored. So 47% of women who were induced compared to 19% of women who spontaneously labored had an epidural, Mm. which that's pretty massive stats. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to note some, some further statistics on this one. So the Cochrane Review released a randomized control trial um, involving over 21,000 women. In 16 different countries. In 16 (laughs) different countries. Now, this was released in 2020, August last year. And it was mainly looking at women who had low risk of developing complications but were being induced for being overdue or post-dates. Now... The evidence in this Cochrane review suggests that women who are induced for post-dates as opposed to going into spontaneous labor were less likely to have a cesarean section, were less likely to have an assisted birth, so vacuum or forceps, and their baby was less likely to be admitted into the neonatal intensive care unit. So the policy of induction also may make little or no difference to the women experiencing perineal trauma and postpartum hemorrhage. Yeah. There's also been some recent studies that have come out to suggest that there are more benefits in inducing earlier, so from 39 weeks onwards. Yeah. I just, I find this so hard as a midwife to think about because you've got all these stats that are coming through saying that it's more beneficial to induce at, say, 39 weeks rather than 41, 42. Yet we're always taught as a midwife, labor is such a natural part. Why are we interfering in it? Why aren't we trusting in our own body's capabilities? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Right. These are just the statistics. We're just throwing in. stuff yeah, at you. Yeah, we're just throwing like <laughs> our general thoughts about it all. That it's really hard as a midwife to wrap your head around. Because this is what we're taught yeah. all through uni, our training, everything that your body was built for this Mm. and you're designed to have a baby. And yes, complications occur. And yes, there are definitely instances where induction is completely appropriate because we're preventing a hundred percent, you know, preventing a loss of a mum or a loss of a baby or prolonged medical issues. They definitely have their place. Absolutely. But 
when it comes to inducing for the sake of inducing, that's when there's a heated debate. Yeah. <laughs> but again, if you're someone that wants an induction and you are completely educated and you're informed about how inductions happen, I think you should be able to have the choice to yes. have that induction. Absolutely. Previously just mentioned a little bit about the epidural rate with inductions. World Health Organization comments that epidural analgesia is one of the most striking examples of the medicalization of normal birth, transforming a physiological event into a medical procedure. So everyone always talks about the cascade of interventions. Mm -hmm. A cascade of intervention, just an example. Say a woman gets an induction. Bam. Contractions are really painful. A woman then requests pain relief. Sometimes a woman doesn't also go through kind of like the stages of pain relief, like mm -hmm. gas, morphine, everything. You just go straight for the epidural. So now you're more <laughs> likely to have a forceps or vacuum delivery not because you're induced, but because of the epidural statistics, which are increased with induction. Baby is then four times more at risk of intracranial hemorrhage. And this occurs when babies are born via an instrument or assisted yeah. delivery. Yeah. So vacuum or forceps can cause more trauma to the baby's head. Rather than a... Rather than just a normal vaginal yeah, birth. vaginal birth. So you're also then increase your chance of having episiotomy due to needing a forceps or vacuum. Or sustaining a third or fourth degree tear because of the sheer force on your pelvic floor yeah. from having an instrumental birth. So that's just what we mean when people talk about a cascade. Actually, we can keep this going. Then you have a postpartum hemorrhage. Oh, yeah. Because you have a significant vaginal tear or you've labored for a really long time on oxytocin and your body has just gone, nope, your uterus can't hold that contractility and you continue to bleed. And then your breast milk can take a little bit longer to come in because, because you've, you've had, had so postpartum much hemorrhage <laughs> yep. and you've had a lot of intravenous fluids, so everything's diluted. And then your baby ends up with a special care nursery because <laughs> it's not getting enough colostrum, blood sugars drop. Now we've really scared you. <laughs> so yeah, that's what we mean with the cascade of interventions, not because you're having an induction, but because of your choice to then have an epidural. Mm. Again, epidurals are much needed in certain situations. Yeah. And sometimes I'll even encourage women to get an epidural mm. if I feel like that's going to benefit them throughout their labor and birth. Mm. And yeah. sometimes epidurals prevent a woman from having an emergency cesarean section. Yeah. Yeah. Women who are being induced for preeclampsia, so that's a high blood pressure condition, sometimes they're strongly advised to have an epidural because it um, drops your blood pressure so it can be quite beneficial in labor and it, you don't also have the increase of your blood pressure going up with like pain and everything yeah. too understand how epidurals increase your chance of needing a forceps or vacuum adrenaline and noradrenaline they're collectively known as catecholamines so or cas as everyone calls them so these levels naturally increase in an unmedicated labor. At the end of an undisturbed labor, a natural surge in these hormones gives the mother the energy to push the baby out. These also make her fully alert at the first meeting with her baby, which is also known as the ejection reflex. However, labor is inhibited by high CA levels, which I was just saying before about the adrenaline and noradrenaline, which may be released when a laboring woman feels hungry cold, scared, or unsafe. So as Ash and I were saying earlier, as women coming into the birthing unit, they're in a different environment, the lights are on, they don't feel safe, that's when contractions can drop off. So epidurals reduce the laboring woman's release of these CAs, which can be helpful if high levels are inhibiting her labor. 
which we're saying adrenals are much needed in some cases. However, a reduction in the final CA surge may contribute to the difficulty in laboring women with an epidural to push the baby out and therefore increase her chance of having an instrumental delivery. So a little bit more about the epidurals. Epidurals are relatively safe and effective, but can have some major drawbacks. They're not always understood by women requesting them, really. It's really hard when a woman is already in full-blown labor. They're in so much pain. You just want the pain to go away. You get an epidural, and that's not the time to go through the risks. risks. Because how many women do you see sitting on the side of the bed going, yep, yep, yep. And they've got their (laughs) eyes closed. Yep, I consent to it. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Just how long will it be? Yeah, they're not even listening. Is it going to be 10 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Epidurals can slow down the birth process because it numbs the nerves, which control the pelvic floor muscles and legs, as well as the uterus and the birth canal. They're more likely to have a longer second stage, resulting in higher chance of having an assisted vaginal delivery. And epidurals lower the mother's production of natural oxytocin. So, or it can stop its normal rise in labor, which is why the drips normally then started after an epidural because it relaxes you so much. So there's some, obviously some common fears relating to being induced. The main ones that we hear as midwives are the contractions are stronger and more painful than those during that you experience during a spontaneous labor now all of the evidence obtaining to this is completely anecdotal so it's just from women's reporting that we hear that it's more painful if it's your first baby you have nothing to compare it to yeah exactly (laughs) increased pain in general so um pain therefore leading to a request to have an epidural and fear often comes derived from listening to other women's birth stories so i have this constant need i think particularly with an older demographic as well to tell you all of the terrible things that happened to them during their labor and, also, and it's their perceived experience yeah. as well. So whatever they're saying to you, just remember that's coming from an emotional state. It actually may not have been as bad as they're describing. And also it doesn't mean that these things, the fear of it aren't going to happen in a spontaneous labor. Mm. You never hear your friends or family members saying to you, I had an induction and it was great was wonderful i had a really good induction experience how rarely do you hear that it's always the scary actually i've heard that a lot birth stories in general yeah when you're at a baby shower you don't always hear like you're gonna be completely fine yeah no one ever says you're no one says like trust your body like it's gonna be fine you're gonna do great it's always like oh you just wait like it's gonna be the worst pain you've ever felt you're gonna need the epidural just take the epidural yeah i think some things to help you prepare for an induction i think preparing for birth in general but definitely preparing for an induction is a lot of women have an idea of what their birth experience is going to be like and as we said at the beginning of this episode sometimes inductions are made at the 11th hour because a concern has suddenly been raised in relation to your health or your baby's health and all of a sudden the plan changes yeah Um, inductions do have some restrictions in the sense that you will be continuously monitored so that means that the midwife or the healthcare provider will constantly you know be touching you obviously with consent being quite close in your personal space but also for most hospital policies it means that water immersion can't be used as a form of pain relief and obviously having to change that plan it can be quite difficult I think that's why it's really important to 
trust in whoever it is that's caring for you have time to have these communication streamlines open so that you can really discuss what it is you want from your experience elements of it will be out of your control but ultimately it is your body and it is your baby Um, and it's your decisions at the end of the day absolutely and you know we have policies in place that ensure that both yourself and your baby are as safe as possible but um, we just all need to work together and meet in the middle so that you can have as much of the birth experience as what you hoped for yeah so in saying if you were someone that really wanted like a water birth and you ended up having to be induced you can still use the shower yeah exactly. for example yeah it's just keeping an open mind to mix things up a little bit yeah so utilize your natural pain relief methods the shower a tens machine yes your positions that are going to help you as well yeah. even if you have leads attached to you you can still mobilize yeah you can still bounce on a ball with your pushing squat like you can still get in every position really. yeah yep. yeah make sure as well that your support people in the room Ooh. know exactly what you want That's and what you don't want one. your support person is your advocate when you are in full-blown labor full-blown <laughs> labor voice. mode yeah when you're in that intrinsic limbic you know t- mindset and conscious state your support person, typically it's your partner, is your number one advocate. Yeah, because you're not going to be really in the mindset to be having full conversations no. in depth. If your partner... Nor do we want to be distru- disrupting no. that Yeah, either. disrupting your environment. So if your support person knows exactly what you want, they can then relay this to your healthcare provider. Again, if you're in a continuity of care and you've had the same healthcare provider, they already know this. Yeah, they should yeah. know this. And also having an open mindset that with inductions, things can change really quickly. And this, again, is where open communication is paramount because as long as you feel safe, regardless of the situation, you know you're, you're going to be okay and you can, yeah. and you can get through it. Yeah. As long as your healthcare provider is explaining to you why things are happening, what needs to be done next, then you'll feel safe enough to continue on and adapt to what the growing changes in that environment, whatever they may be. There is also, there's definitely positives to inductions. I feel like a lot of what we've been speaking about, it's been necessary for women to know about this, but it can make women scared Mm. as well of the induction process. Yeah. So to go through some positives, because inductions can be positive, they can be beautiful, they can be empowering. One thing is women can feel like with inductions, they have control over their decision to labor. So they're feeling like they have control of their birth choices. Yeah. And some women do choose an induction for what we call maternal requests. So your social circumstances lead you to wanting to be induced at a certain gestation. Um, Most healthcare providers will take this into consideration as long as you're at term. So beyond that 37 week mark and you're aware of the risk factors associated with the induction. Um, so a lot of women who do maternal requests is because their partner's going away or someone yeah. in their family yeah. has passed away and they need to be present at a funeral. Or There's a, a bunch of different reasons to why women re- would request an induction. Um, but, yeah, I feel like it's completely within their rights to be able to... Start the conversation yeah, at least. yeah. Also, not always needing every component of an induction or labour. So some women legit 
Like you come in, you only need your waters broken and then you can labor. Doesn't mean you have to have the drip. Yeah. Just because you've consented to an induction doesn't mean you'll have all of the steps. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's another positive. And also a very big positive. I suppose this is like with elective Caesars, you know your date. Mm. So you can book an induction in, you know, I'm going to have a baby on the 18th. You could labor prior to that spontaneously. But it can be You could also have a baby on the 19th. Yeah. (laughs) If your induction takes a little while. Um, But you can work out your family. If you have other kids, you can get everything organized. So that's a positive for an induction as well. There are also natural remedies that you can use to try and induce labor. Now, this is more so pertaining to... Um, the reason of induction being being post-date. Yeah, so if you're low risk. Yeah, really. so most of natural remedies really wouldn't be strongly advised if you're being induced for a medical reason per se um, or, or not in substitution it. of <laughs> an induction because you're being induced for a medical reason. But if they've induced you, say, in a week's time, then you've got yourself a week to get yourself in spontaneous labor. Yeah. So you may as well give these a crack. Not a lot of... Um, obstetricians and doctors are really in favor of these natural remedies but we're midwives and we're all for it we're all for it (laughs) number one actually first thing make sure you turn (laughs) don't be doing these things at 34 35 weeks don't be doing that number one number two (laughs) (laughs) i can't count number two oh actually (laughs) stop interrupting me just this is number two also not if you're having a planned caesar yeah, no, why would you bother? No. Yeah. Okay, go. I talk now. <laughs> Intercourse. Oh, yeah. Mate, so it's some, doctors, hormone. some doctors think that this isn't a thing, but sperm has prostaglandins in yeah, it. Yeah. So get that sperm up near your cervix, put your legs in the air. Yeah. Intercourse. Yeah, so there's no the point oxytoy. doing pull-out method. No. Well, for one, you're already pregnant. <laughs> um, <laughs> but home, <laughs> have some sex. That is a good one. You're probably not really going to feel like your oh, most yeah, sexy no. self. No, but, <laughs> no, no. 40 weeks. Just if try and enjoy date, it. <laughs> if you post date, it's like you're just giving anything a go, really. Acupressure and acupuncture can also be beneficial. Most acupuncturists will advise, though, that you don't start this at 40 weeks. If you're going to use yeah. acupressure and acupuncture as a way in which to get your body prepared, they usually like to see you quite early on in your pregnancy and they modify what they do to you as like as you become yeah, yeah. term. Um, also, as we discussed, a sweep and stretch. It's like a mild intervention. Walking. We've previously mentioned gutter walking yes. in some of our episodes. Get, get going. Down. Some of the old wives' tales are like, spicy food really that just probably is going to give you diarrhea and the diarrhea makes your uterus irritable so then you go into labor so then you go into labor but like (laughs) but also don't eat too much spicy food it's like not nice it's not nice for us to be like cleaning it up as (laughs) well you don't you you won't like it no especially if you've never pooped in front of your partner before (laughs) oh also what is it? Is it like, do you reckon it's like 90% of women poop whilst they're giving birth? Uh, oh, look, 80, I'm not going to throw out 80. that stat exactly. Yeah, but that's not a legit stat. The rest of the stats in this podcast are legit, <laughs> but it'd be about lot. 80%. Yeah. It's at least lot. a nugget. Yeah. A nugget. <laughs> so just don't even worry about that at all. No, but it also don't give yourself diarrhea because that's just not going to be nice for you. 
Pineapple is an old wives' tale as well. But I read in an article that you have to eat around about nine full pineapples (laughs) to actually... Yeah, so don't be doing that. You're just going to end up with, like, ulcers and stuff. Castor oil. Do do not do this. Don't do it. I think we're like natural remedies to induce labor <laughs> but we're telling you not to use this one but we're we're mentioning it because you probably have heard this before yeah um it will just make say, you oh. crampy and sick it's awful vomit diarrhea Yuck. yeah just avoid that one also aromatherapy so yeah. clary sage mm. um can help your uterus to start tightening and contract yeah this actually, I when I was pregnant, I looked after multiple women using clary sage, mm. and I was contracting quite a lot with that. Oops. Yeah, I was cr- really one. I was eighteen weeks, and I didn't know that she was using it. It was in the bath, um, and I was actually tightening quite a lot that night. So after that, I was like, "Whoa!" Like, I yeah. react to clary sage quite strongly. Once I got to thirty-eight weeks, I was dousing myself in clary <laughs> sage. I was having baths with it. I like soaked it in salts. Yeah. Um, so yeah, give clary sage a work. It's also great for menstrual cramps. Oh, is it? Yeah, I use oh. rub clary sage on my back. That's a goodie. Mm. And also induction massage. So a lot of um, places that do acupressure and acupuncture will also do an induction massage. I had a couple of them. It's actually just a really nice, relaxing, hour-long massage, but they also do pressure points um, throughout your body as well that can help to bring on labor. Eating dates. Ooh, six dates a day. Yeah, six dates a day. So I hope you like dates. Particularly, it can't be the pitted dates. They need to be the medjool yeah. dates. Um, they say that dates actually help soften your cervix. But yeah, you need to eat six a day. So incorporate them into smoothies. Make um, the balls. protein balls, yeah. nut balls. Um, nipple stimulation is another oh, one. yeah, that's a goodie. Again, don't do this until your term. But like, yeah. Touching your nipples, hand expressing, getting a little bit of colostrum out. It's really just anything to get that oxytocin going. Flowing, yeah. That love hormone. Yeah. So love it up. Yeah. It's really like the last thing you feel like doing when you're heavily pregnant. <laughs> your, ma- your partner might be heaps into it. <laughs> so that wraps up our induction of labor episode. We hope you gained a little bit of insight and I hope we dispelled some fear, hopefully, surrounding the potential possibility of being induced. And just giving you a little bit more of a rundown about what inductions actually entail. entail. Yeah. yeah. Because that's not what it a is lot a of process. Women... Being induced is... is a process. It's oh, not it you is... just walk into hospital yeah. and you're gonna have a baby. Done. No. no. It's step one. Step two, step three, otherwise it's step one and three or two and three. (laughs) Can be all over the shop. (laughs) All four, I don't know. But at the end of the day, I don't want every woman to look at induction as a negative thing. No. They can be very positive. You're going to get a beautiful gift out of it. Absolutely. And as long as you've prepared yourself the best way you can, you know, if an induction has sprung on you and you didn't anticipate it was going to happen, you're going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. Just make sure that you feel safe with whoever is caring for you. Make sure your support people are well aware of what your idea of your birth experience is. Jot it down. Write a birth plan. Tweak it slightly. Incorporate different aspects that potentially could arise in your labor so that your care providers know exactly what your wishes wishes are. are. Yeah. Tune in for our next episode in a fortnight. Bye. 
So thank you for listening to this episode of With Woman. We hope you found this useful for your journey and you can find us on Instagram at withwoman.thepodcast. So flick us a follow and get amongst it. You'll find our latest episode updates there and also please feel free to slide on into our DMs if there are any topics you'd like us to discuss in the future. That's it for us. Bye. Bye.